We really do. Uh, so many things we take for granted, and uh, we, we have so much, and we've been so blessed, and you have taken care of us to such an amazing degree. That's why it's such a great thing for us to um, take uh, a trip from time to time, to go to another country, uh, a country that is less fortunate, because whenever we do that, it gives us such perspective. It um, reminds us, it reminds us, Lord, uh, of the things that we just assume will be there, that other people uh, don't assume. They, they, look on, they look on certain things that we, we never give a second thought to. They look on those things as great, great luxuries. So, uh, Lord, we, we want to stop and say thank you. We can so easily get uh, worn down and get tired and, and just frustrated with the everyday battles of life. And, and uh, if we're not careful, we can become uh, like Israel uh, during their 40 years where we wander. And not only do we wander, but we wander without being thankful. We, uh, we murmur. We uh, lose our spirit of gratitude. Um, we don't ever want to do that. And it's so easy to fall into. We look around and we see others who have more than we do. We see people that have uh, things that we would hope one day to have. Um, it seems as though we are always comparing. But if we're not careful, that can um, have deep spiritual ramifications in our lives. And the fact of the matter is, is that uh, constant comparison ruins uh, our contentment. So help us to be very careful. Help us to guard our hearts. Um, so many folks, Lord, are pursuing the, uh, the things of life and, and, the, uh, and the pleasures of life. Scripture says, in thy right hand, there are, ple there are pleasures forever. In thy presence is fullness of joy. We are grateful tonight that, um, that we have uh, your word, that we have your truth. We, um, we look to you, Lord Jesus. We don't look to anyone else. We don't put anyone else on a pedestal. We look to you. Um, the rest of us are deeply flawed, uh, but you are not. Uh, you are our role model. Uh, you're our king, you're our lord, you're our savior, you are our sovereign. You have never, ever disappointed us, and you never will. Your word is, uh, is as good as gold. Quite frankly, it's better than gold. And so tonight we look at it, and we pray that we will be able to take it in and absorb it, and that we would not just be hearers of it, but that we would be doers. Save us, Lord, from ourselves. Save us from just being in a church that teaches the Bible, but not letting that Bible filter into our heart and into our gut. Give us a, give us a fresh love for Christ, a desire to follow him, a desire to know him, uh, a, a willingness to let the word cut deep into our hearts and to, and to judge our intentions and our motivations, because we could so easily screw up our lives. 
give us a desire for accountability. It's easy to talk that stuff, but give us a desire for it. Give us a, a willingness to make our ourselves to a couple of people who can, who can help us walk through life. Uh, don't let us be liars in here. Don't let us do that, Lord. Don't let us uh, be self-deceivers. We, 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 quite frankly, don't need Satan's influence to be self-deceivers. We are completely able and adequate of ourselves to deceive ourselves. So, Lord, tonight, do, do a deep work. We're not here to horse around. We're not here to uh, have tea with a bunch of old ladies and play church. We're, we're, we're here to, um, to bow before you and to yield to you and to ask you to work in our lives and make us into godly men. Godly men. It's going to take a lot of change and a lot of work. But you started the work and you have promised to finish the work. Um, so we're counting on you and your word to fulfill that. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm waiting for um, Federal Express here. And I don't see the truck. Um, hey, Lou. You know there's first parking lot here, and then there's a, like a road to the next one? I'm in the last row of the first parking lot in the very corner. Hey, Lou. This, this corner, and it's the suburban, okay? And, uh, and if you're not back in five minutes, we're, we're sending Jim. <laughs> we're sending a search party. We're getting concerned here, all right? I think Les might have gone to dinner, but uh, in the suburban, and I gave him the keys, and Les may be going on another cruise for all I know, and... Uh, my wallet's, no, I got my wallet, but my phone. Yeah, my checkbook's in there. I'm a little worried about that. You know, Jim, I may borrow your Bible after all. Thank you. You're a good man to do that. All right. Um, you should have seen that well throwing that water. I'm telling you. It was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. All right, Luke chapter 5. Lou just went out that, you can't find it. Okay. Oh, Excedrin? Yeah. <laughs> hey, you might catch Lou. He's out there. He was going to Wendy's to get me a cheeseburger, so maybe. All right, thanks. Sorry about that, guys. It's not in there. That's really hard to believe. Did you look under the seat? Yes, sir. Oh, you did. All right. You're, you're an elder, man. You, you... Why, don't, why don't we take a five-minute break and you go out there? No, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm all right. It, it's okay. I either just walked out and, and it's, it's out there. We'll find it. Luke chapter 5. Last week we talked about uh, Jonah, the prophet in the fish. Tonight, oops. Tonight, we're going to talk about the fisherman and the fish. Now, as we're doing this fish thing, what, what we're doing is we're, we're really continuing through some of the ideas that we saw in Joseph, uh, in particular on the providence of God. We've, if you've been with us in our study, we, we have said that the providence of God is the missing doctrine in the evangelical church. When you, when you study the history of Christianity, when you study the history of the church, uh, you, if you go down to Dallas Seminary and take a course in church history, you'll see that they had, from time to time in the early church, they had to call together um, uh, church councils to hammer out what they really believed on certain things. And, the, you know, the deity of Christ, and, and then they had to move, you know, to other things about, well, you, you know, the Trinity and all. I mean, so that's what the church council is all about. Um, if, if a council were to be called today in the evangelical church, uh, well, we could call several councils because, you know, the church, the church is always drifting. Um, and there is an apostate church and there is the authentic church. And so we live in a day, I was reading this week, that uh, why is the mainstream media so high on the Episcopalian church? Because the Episcopalian church, quite frankly, is an apostate church. They, they, they hardly have any members. Now, there are some conservative Episcopalians who are fighting like crazy, uh, but they keep getting thrown out. Now, worldwide, the Episcopalians in Africa are standing against what's going on in America. And here and there, you have conservative Episcopalians, but they're a remnant. Generally speaking, the Episcopalian church, they, they stand for anything. Uh, they buy anything. They go for anything. Gay marriage. I mean, it, that's why the mainstream media likes them. They look like a real church. They got guys in robes and all dressed up, and they look real sanctimonious, and they're reprobates. Uh, there's always an apostate church. So we, if we had a council in the church today, we could have it over the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. The Southern Baptists have fought that one, and the conservatives won, and we thank the Lord for that. Um, but that's rare in church history. Usually the conservatives get booted out. But in the Southern Baptist, uh, you had Paige Patterson, and you had uh, the, who, who's the judge down in Houston? Paul Pressler. And those guys stood up, and they came up with a strategy, and let's take this thing back, and they did. Took the seminaries back. Southern Seminary in Louisville had gone just completely out of their minds. And now that's a bedrock Southwestern or so. They're always doctrinal issues, always. Uh, one of the doctrines that's gotten lost in the evangelical church among Bible-believing Christians is the providence of God. So you say, so why do you, why do you keep hammering on this providence thing? Because we've lost so much of it. So many of us in this room have been raised in Christian churches that teach the Bible, and we've heard very, very little about the providence of God because we have become so man-centered. Man, man has become big, and so much of what happens depends on us. Now, do we have a will? Sure we have a will. Do we have choice? Sure. Do our choices matter? You bet our choices matter. Our choices are critical. That's why we're told in the Scripture to walk in wisdom. 
That's why we're we're told in Proverbs to guard our heart. That's why Proverbs is a father talking to about son, and he's trying to give him wisdom so he can live life wisely because there is every action has a reaction every every choice has a consequence uh every uh every cause has an effect as important as our wills are god's will is more important and god has a plan for the ages and god's plan is going to happen and it's going to happen on time uh for those of you that have not been with us when we talk about the providence of god in essence what we're saying is that which God creates, it's great. You guys just passed the class. Way to hum. 4-0 for the semester. That which God creates, God sustains. That which God creates, God provides for. Did God not create you? All right, has he sustained you? Okay. You say, yeah, but I'm going to die. Yes, you are going to die. And then what's going to happen the moment you die? To be absent from The body is to be present with the Lord. So when you die, you are promoted. No more pain, no more suffering, no more heartache, no more disappointment, no more stress, no more... It's a good deal. It's a great deal. But between now and heaven, the providence of God is going to take care of us and provide for us. The great hymn we've quoted, uh, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Thy hand hath providence. And as we've pointed out, God's grace has never been early, and God's grace has never been late. God's grace is always just in time. Just in time. It's great stuff. It's great stuff. He sustains us. So we're in Luke 5. And in Luke 5, what we've got I'm getting used to this new Bible here. I like some of your notes though. These are good. Yeah, I may I may actually preach off these. I could do a book off some of these. That'd be good. Put my last kid through college. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Jim. Luke 5, I've got to figure out these verses. Um, let's, uh, let's read several verses to get the context. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, or it's the Sea of Galilee, actually. You know, it can be called by different things. Sometimes the Sea of Galilee is called the Sea of Tiberias, but it's the same lake, it's just different side. Tiberias is on the west side, Gennesaret is on the east side. Uh, So Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's. Not only can lakes be called two things, uh, people can be called two things. You, You knew that, didn't you? In fact, Peter is called three things. He can be called Simon, he can be called Peter, and he can be called Rock, he can be called Cephas. Okay, different names. Don't you have three names, most of you? Sure you do. Larry, what's your middle name? Keith. Keith. We'll call you Larry. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. What's yours? James. We'll call you Steve. Sure. All right. All right. We, 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 let's move on to the text here. 
this well thing has really screwed me up today. <laughs> then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. They've been working the graveyard shift. That's lousy work. Any of you guys ever work graveyard? Yeah, it just screws you up. I mean, you're worthless for the rest of the day. I had a friend in California who was a highway, California Highway Patrolman, and it used to be, I don't know what they do now, but California Highway Patrolman used to work uh, a certain amount of weeks, days, and then let's say it was like eight, you know, four weeks. In fact, I think it was four weeks. You'd work four weeks, days. Then you'd work four weeks, swing, three to 12. Then the next four weeks, you'd work 12 to eight. Then the next, those guys are constantly, how do you ever get your equilibrium? I used to work uh, on the weekends, graveyard, when I was in college. Um, and I mean, it, and I was screwed up till next Thursday. You finally, it's like jet lag coming back from Israel or something. These guys have been up all night. They caught nothing. So Peter says, Master, we toiled all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. And their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, you know most fish stories aren't true. <laughs> this one is true. In the providence of God, the fact that God is in absolute control of all things, is all over this story. I got nine observations tonight out of this text about the providence of God. And you know what I think? I think these nine observations about God's providence will help us this week with what we're dealing with. Observation number one. Past providences fuel faith in future providences. One more time. Past providences fuel faith in future providences. The providence we have just read is that he'd been up all night. Uh, not one fish, not one lousy fish. But Jesus says, Peter, uh, throw your nut on the other side. We're, we're talking about, about four feet. Little boats. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel and you'll visit the Sea of Galilee, they have pulled up one of these boats from the time of Peter. It was, it was in the mud flats. And a number of years ago when the Sea of Galilee was particularly low and there was drought, um, somebody's out walking one morning and out in the mud flats they saw something. And sure enough, they pulled that sucker up and it's in a museum now right there at Tiberias and you can see it. 
And those, those things are narrow. At best, they're four feet wide. Uh, uh, there's a principle right there. Sometimes the difference between success and failure is about four feet. Uh, so past providences fuel faith in future providences. Up all night, fishing, tired, cleaning their net. They're cleaning their net. You know, you clean your nets, you're ready to go to bed. And, and what does Jesus say? He said, hey, you know what? Throw them on the other side. Now, know what Peter does. What, what Peter does here is that he says, and he explains to the Lord, Lord, we, we worked all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, catch this, at your word, I will let down the net. He went ahead and did what Jesus said. Why? Well, I think it's because of something that had happened in the immediate past. If you look at chapter 4, verse 38. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, Peter's house. And, and Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her, Jesus did, and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. There's the providence of God. How does Jesus speak in a, in a high, raging fever? Immediate leaves, and the lady gets up and starts going to work. That's the power of God at the right time, which is the providence of God, which once again points to the fact that he is in control of all things. All things. Peter had just witnessed this prior to the event in, in the next chapter. He had just seen a recent past provision of God. So Jesus says, do this, and he does it. See, past providences fuel our faith in future providences. John Piper uh, has written a great book called Future Grace. And John's premise is, is very simple, that we've gotten this far by grace. That's what John Newton said. In Amazing Grace. Uh, how does the hymn go? And grace, somebody help me. You know what I'm trying to say. And grace has brought us safe this far, and grace, grace will lead us home. So, so where we are today, grace has brought us safe thus far. But what Piper's saying in the book is, that's great, we thank God for it. But the grace that you were given yesterday, we're thankful for it, but... You can't live off that grace of yesterday today. You know what you need today? You need fresh grace. What, what you're going to need tonight at 9 o'clock, you're going to need future grace. Tomorrow, you're going to need future grace. See, we're thankful for the grace that we've received, but we need future grace. And the thing about the future grace and the thing about the future providence is that it's there exactly when you need it. So past providences fuel my faith that the future providences are going to be there when I absolutely need them to be there. Number two, all providences proclaim God's absolute authority over all things. I'll say it again. All providences proclaim God's absolute authority over all things. He just heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then verse 40 says... When the sun was setting, 
And by the way, do you know why the sun sets? Because of God's providence. He has ordained it. Uh, morning, evening, the seasons, fall, winter, spring, summer. He's ordained all of that. Rain. There's a great old painting. I don't know who did it. Maybe you've seen it. Looks like it's from the 1800s. And there's a farmer with his wife out in the field, and they've just planted the field. And he's on his knees with his head bowed and his hat off, and she's standing next to him with his hand on his shoulder with their heads bowed. They've done the work they can do. They've planted the seed. They don't have a well. (laughs) With 31 stations. They need the providence of God. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. See, you've got to be in absolute control to heal disease. Absolute control. And when you are in absolute control, what that signifies is that you have all authority. All authority. Authority over everything. Everything. Now, the question we ask is, does God heal today? And the answer would be, of course, God heals today. Well, why doesn't he heal everybody? Do you know the answer to that question? I don't either. Once again, Isaiah 55, 8, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If it was my way, everybody would be healed. For some reason, God has chosen not to heal everyone. Now, the person who knows Christ, and we pray for their healing, and they die. They've just been healed. They're in complete health. They're completely restored. Um, But you see, when you can heal every disease, and you think about what Jesus did, and, and, you know, the scriptures don't even tell us all that he did. That's what John said. If, if it were written, all that Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. We just got snippets of what Jesus did. So in John 9, you got the man blind from birth. Healed. You got the lady with the issue of blood. She just reaches out and touches him. He's in a crowd. He said, power has been removed. The other disciples say, hey, what do you mean? All kinds of people are around you. What do you mean? He said, who touched me? Well, everybody's touching you. No, no, no. Somebody touched me who needed healing. She was instantaneously healed. And by the way, what he was doing in the crowd was that he was going because Jairus had said, would you come and pray for my daughter who is on her deathbed? And as he's going, this lady reaches out and touches him, and she's healed. Jairus' daughter was healed. And didn't they laugh at Jairus' daughter because he said she's just sleeping? And they laughed? And then she got up. And then another time, there's this funeral procession, and this woman's weeping because her son has died, 
Jesus says, get up. And he got up. Uh, leprosy. Boom. You're clean. See, it takes the providence of God. It takes a God who is in control of all things to do that. And, and when it happened, see, what, what happens is that's authority. That's authority. Authority. Have you noticed that we live in a culture that is anti-authority? But God is the ultimate authority. And, it's, and that takes me to number three. I can't camp there. i got to move. Number three. If demons acknowledge his authority and providence, so should men. Number three. If demons acknowledge his authority and providence, so should men. So he's healing all these people, verse 41. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. Do you realize that a case could be made that really the first group to proclaim who Christ was were the demons? I tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about um, uh, I'm thinking about uh, I'm thinking about people who profess belief in Christ and they live like absolute hell, and they run their homes like hell. And you know what, quite frankly, I mean, I think so many times we're so quick to give people assurance about heaven. Now listen, I grew up in a church where you didn't get assurance on heaven. That's why I get saved every Sunday night all over again for about 16 years straight. If there was an altar call, I went down. Because there was no question I was a sinner. I was bad news at five and a half. I knew my heart was bad. And, but see, in the church I was raised in, there was no sense of the security of the believer. Hey, the believer, the true believer, and you know there are false believers just as there are false teachers. You know that, don't you? A lot of people proclaim belief. Scripture says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not... Cast out demons. Did we not do works of dunamis in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me. I am sorry, but you backslid. It's not what it says. Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. But you know what? You prophesy and you do works of miracles and you do this. Let me tell you something. That's how you get on TV. Right? And then Jesus said, not a few will say to me. He said, many will say to me. Many. I never knew you. See, we don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. We don't know if they've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. You can, you can, you can talk with your mouth and your heart can be a thousand miles away. We all know that, right? Sure. Now, please don't misunderstand. I think the Lord wants us to know he wants us to know that salvation is of him, and salvation is not dependent on us. But 
But we can move into licentiousness where it's not free grace, it's cheap grace. And if you think you can do anything you want at any time and ignore the Spirit of God, and you have no interest in the Spirit of God, and you have no conscience to the Spirit of God, you better ask if the Spirit of God is even in your life. Why believe? Well, the demons believe. The demons believe. Um... So if demons acknowledge his authority and providence, so should men. What's amazing is that so many men don't acknowledge. Um, this week I was in Illinois and I was out of books and I found this book in a cheap bookstore called Privileged Son, Otis Chandler and the Rise and Fall of the L.A. Times Dy- Dynasty. Now, I started selling the L.A. Times when I was 10 years old in Bakersfield, California. I got a red wagon it said L.A. Times, and I sold the Sunday Times on Saturday. And uh, I made big money in those days. That was, um, how old was I? That was 47 years ago. And I read the L.A. Times when I was 10. There was a sports writer named Jim Murray, one of the greatest writers ever. Phenomenal. Ask Chuck about Jim Murray. Chuck loved Jim Murray. What a writer. Anyway, this book... Uh, this is a wild book because it talks about the history of the L.A. Times. The L.A. Times is off their rocker right now. They're, they are liberal, left-wing, anti-anything, anti-truth, anti-common sense. They're just anti. They're idiots, basically. In fact, they ought to rename that paper. The L.A. Idiots is, is what they ought to name it, in my humble opinion. Um, and what this book is about is how Otis Chandler... You see, his, it's the story of the founding of the L.A. Times. Well, it was founded by his uh, great-grandfather, who was this Bible-believing Methodist businessman. And, and so as a result, the L.A. Times was a pretty conservative newspaper. Took a stand on moral issues, wasn't afraid to come out and say certain things. Uh, but you read the story, and... It's how Otis Chandler, who was the great-grandson, turned it into a great newspaper that won all kinds of awards. In other words, he screwed it up and turned it liberal so that all the liberal newspaper associations would now acknowledge him. His grandfather was a conservative, God-fearing Methodist. Then he died, and his grandfather took it over. His grandfather was a quieter man, uh, um, was, was a very conservative man, a member of the Congregational Church in Los Angeles. Uh, stood with many evangelical leaders in the early years of the 20th century. Uh, then he died, and Norman Chandler took it over. And Norman Chandler um, basically had no faith in the Lord at all, and was a very moral man and a very conservative man, but had no interest in the Lord, um, loved his wife, was a great husband, but spiritually was bankrupt. He, uh, he lived off the spiritual capital of the past. Now, his son Otis comes along, and Otis Chandler just died in February. 
If you lived in the West Coast, you knew about this guy. He was a great athlete at Stanford, big, blonde guy, looked like a Greek god, about 6'3", lifted weights all his life, just a stud. World champion, not world champion, almost, shot putter. Great athlete at Stanford. Surfed all of his life from the time he was about 10 years old. And uh, Otis Chandler basically was a narcissist, as you read the book. Was just completely self-absorbed. Had no faith whatsoever. When he applied to go to Stanford, Stanford, on the application, asked your religious um, denomination. And he had to call his father and ask him, because he didn't know. And his father said, we're congregational. He'd never been to church in his life, the biography says. Never been to church in his life. Although his great-grandfather was a godly man, and his grandfather was committed to the scriptures. But you see, his father was completely bankrupt spiritually. And then what happened is, when Otis Chandler took over the paper, and he's this young Greek god stud, he's got all this money and all this, and a hard-working guy, but then suddenly, the LA Times starts changing, and he starts hiring all these guys, and his, his father is just going crazy because he says, you're turning this paper liberal. What is this nonsense? What are you taking this? What are you doing? What are you doing? And he couldn't understand why his son had turned completely against the, his philosophy and the philosophy of his father and the philosophy of his grandfather. He couldn't understand. And then I read that section where Otis Chandler had never been to church in his life. You know, we talk about politics today, and we talk about, you know, liberals and conservatives and all that. You know, and we use different terms. There are social conservatives. And then you have, uh, what's another kind of conservative? There are fiscal conservatives. Fiscal conservatives don't give a rip about moral issues. Why? Because they're spiritually bankrupt. If, if you know Christ, and you digest the Word of God you have strong feelings on certain issues that the Bible speaks about. You think abortion is murder. Because the Bible says that it is. Uh, you're going to have certain views that a healthy, able-bodied man ought to get his rear end out of bed and go to work. Because Paul said if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Now, True and godly religion is taking care of widows and orphans. If someone has a need, if someone's disabled, we want to assist and we want to help. But we don't just don't. You, you understand? You understand what I'm saying? Sure you do. Uh, it, it was interesting to read this book because uh, I was rereading um, David Wells. The guy's brilliant. His book, Above All Earthly Powers. Uh, see, the point I'm under is this. What, what am I under? What's my point? If demons acknowledge his authority and providence, so should men. So what is it that we all have, and what is it that we all enjoy in this nation? We have so much. We, we're just incredibly blessed. He quotes Walter Lippmann, who was a great columnist back, I remember reading Lippmann in the LA Times when I was in elementary school. Uh, Walter Lippmann wrote a book called A Preface to Morals. Listen to this. Uh, these are perhaps merely the rationalizations of the modern man's discontent. At the heart of it, there are likely to be moments of blank misgiving in which he finds that the civilization of which he is a part leaves a dusty taste in his mouth. Now here we go. 
He may be very busy with many things, but he discovers one day that he is no longer sure they are worth doing. This is the typical American man. He has been much preoccupied, but he is no longer sure he knows why. He has become involved in an elaborate routine of pleasures, and they do not seem to amuse him very much. He finds it hard to believe that doing any one thing is better than doing any other thing, or in fact, that it is better than doing nothing at all. It occurs to him that it is a great deal of trouble to live, and that even in the best of lives, the thrills are few and far between. He begins more or less consciously to seek satisfactions because he is no longer satisfied, and all the while he realizes that the pursuit of happiness was always a most unhappy quest. When you read the life of uh, Otis Chandler, who was the fourth publisher of the LA Times, what happened to this guy, his wife described him as a narcissist, completely self-absorbed. When he retired with millions and millions of dollars, uh, I'll just read you a quote out of the book. She had married a bon- By the way, this is his second wife who was uh, uh, a pastor's wife of a Nazarene pastor who got involved with another woman and betrayed her, caused her to walk away from Christ. She becomes a new ager, and she's going to fortune tellers and astrologers and all that. Interesting. So that's who Otis Chandler wound up marrying. She had married a bona fide narcissist who was always too busy forcing himself to have fun to devote much thought to others. He bought and sold cars, motorcycles, and real estate with a passion, moving from house to house on average every two years, always expanding, adding on, redecorating, then putting up a for sale sign. Not because he had to move, but because he wanted to try something new and different. In another section, he collected antique cars, muscle cars. So he'd buy every Dodge Charger that he could find in pristine condition. He would corner the market. He'd buy the very cream of the crop, the best 66 Dodge Chargers. You guys remember those muscle cars? He'd buy the very best, the top 25 in the world. And then what do you do? He'd, get them commu- he'd have a museum. He'd have them six months. You know what he'd do? He'd sell them. Then he'd go buy all the 67 Chevy Camaros. And he'd take, you know, maybe a year, year and a half to do that, pay top, top. And then we do that. He'd get them all just perfect. He'd go sell them. Shelby Mustang. He and Bettina were relentlessly traveling to new and exotic vacation spots. His longtime secretary, Donna Swayze, who had watched his actions for more than a generation, said that Otis had become more restless as he grew older. There would never be a genuine danger that he might stay in one spot long enough to lapse into meaningful introspection. Did you get that? There would never be a genuine danger that he might stay in one spot long enough to lapse into meaningful introspection. He wasted his life. Wasted it. Guys worth billions. Millions. Close to billions. And he died in February. Uh, you know, all that he had came from God. And you know what's so sad? He was, he was spiritually bankrupt when he died. And his kids, the kids he left were spiritually bankrupt. His one son is coming up to the house because he heard his dad was on his deathbed, and he comes up, and he sees a flock of birds that leave the roof of the house, and the son thought to himself, Dad's spirit is going with the birds. That is sad. What do you think the great-grandfather would have thought of that? That Bible-believing Methodist would have sickened him. 
See, the demons believe. This guy was so smart, he didn't believe. Number four, providence, and this is a quote from Thomas Watson. You guys still with me? You, hey, let me ask you, you ever think about dying? Do you? You ever think about dying? I never really thought much about dying until I hit 40. I'm dead serious. Rarely thought about it. It was like when I hit 40, I think about it every day. I think about it, I think I think about it almost every day. Do you? How many of you guys are over 40? See your hand, if you can get your hands up. <laughs> Rotator cuff. Now, if you're over 40, do you think about dying often? Do you? You should. It's, it's a good thing to think about. See, if we're so busy, this guy was so busy. I mean, I, I read this, I couldn't put this guy's book down. This guy accumulated, and you know what he reminded me? He reminded me of Solomon. Because he had all this money, and it was this, this, this. I came, you know, Solomon, you know, he got all the fig trees. He got all the fruit trees. He got all the vineyards. He got the male and female singers. He got, you know, he just. <laughs> you never have time to sit down and think because you don't want to think because you're going to die. Another uh, great newspaper publisher was William Randolph Hearst. And you can still visit his place today in San Simeon, Hearst Castle. Staggering. I mean, it'll take your breath away. And that was one of five places he had. He had so much stuff. There's a great story about William Randolph Hearst. Two stories. Number one, he would have all his papers brought into him, and every morning he'd come down for breakfast and all his papers that he owned, and he owned scores of them, were all laid out on the table. But his secretary had gone through and removed every reference to death in every newspaper because he was scared to death to die. So one thing he couldn't buy his way out of. What was the second thing? He had this great well on his property. I just lost the second thing. I don't remember what it was. It was death. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, he was, uh, he was looking. He had people full-time that scoured Europe for all these. I mean, you just can't believe the stuff. He had warehouses in L.A., and he had warehouses in New York just full of stuff. And he had a particular buyer, and there was this famous tapestry, and he wanted to hang it on one of the walls in San Simeon. And he had this guy looking for this thing and looking for it and looking for it. Uh, for a number of years, and they could not track this thing down. And when Hearst, at the end of his life, was on, quite frankly, on the verge of bankruptcy, and they had to take over everything and put him in receivership, and they were going through and cataloging all his warehouses, they found the tapestry. <laughs> he had had it the whole time in one of his warehouses. The sucker had so much, he didn't know what he had. What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Number four, providence, this is a quote from Thomas Watson. Providence is a Christian's diary, but not his Bible. So what do you mean by that? Let's say it again. Providence is a Christian's diary, but not his Bible. Uh, look at chapter five, verse one. 
So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. Why did they come around Jesus? Because he proclaimed the word of God. You know what providence is? So what do you mean that providence is not, it's my diary, but not. Here's what I'm saying. You live off your Bible. You don't live off of providence. What I mean by that is providence is the diary in your life of what God has done and how he has provided in your life. There's a fine line between recognizing that God is at work and that God is active in our lives. How many people do you hear saying this, the Lord told me? The Lord told me. The Lord told me this. The Lord told It's become, I mean, some people, they're, 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 the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. The Lord, and I've gotten to a point where I just stop and I, I try to say it kindly, but no, okay, can you tell me how he told you? And usually what they mean, and they're very well-meaning, and you know where they get this? We hear it all the time. We hear preachers doing this. If, if you watch a lot of Christian television, it's epidemic, and the Lord told me this, and the Lord told me that, and the Lord said this, and the Lord said that. Like, shut up. <laughs> Sit down and shut up. That's really convenient if you're a preacher because you never need to study your Bible. You just walk around all day. Gagan. You know? Buying a new Rolex. Getting another jet. Uh, as people send in their seed to your ministry and you do your praise-a-thon or your rip-a-thon or whatever you call it. All those suckers talk about is seed. Yeah, that's true. It's in the Bible. It's true. There's a lot of other stuff in the Bible. Well, the Lord told me, and the other day the Lord told me. You yeah, know, I know the Lord told me. Right here. Now, here's, so here's the deal. So a lot of well-meaning people will pick this up. Well, the Lord told me. Okay, can I ask you what you mean by that? Well, sure. I mean, how do you know he told you? Well, I, 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 well, this thought entered my mind. Okay, well, that's fine. Because the Lord leads us, doesn't he? But you know what John said? John said, test the spirits to see if they be of God. Can the Lord impress something on my heart? I'm not denying that. He can't do that. He can do it. Have you ever had something put on your heart and you couldn't get away? Have you ever have you ever had the experience of someone being on your heart and you just you could I remember one time picking up the phone and calling my ex roommate from college. I thought in about a three hour span he came to my mind about three or four times that morning. I hadn't thought about him in months. Was it, I, I just picked up the phone, called him, and I said, hey, hey, Jim, how you doing? He goes, Steve. I go, yeah, how you doing? I didn't talk to you in a while. He said, I'm not doing real well. I said, really? He said, I'm having, I'm, I'm having the hardest day I've had probably in my whole life today. I said, really? Now, I could have said, well, you know, Jim, the Lord spoke to me and told me to call you. Now, you know what I think? I think the Lord impressed me to call him. But I'm not walking around saying the Lord told me. 
Because I've had impressions like that, and you know what? Nothing panned out. That's why I don't live off providence. Because, see, sometimes I misinterpret events. I live off the Word of God. Does that make sense? You have an impression? Great. Match it to the Word of God. Don't walk around saying, the Lord said, the Lord said. You don't know if he said or not. Now, if it's in this book, you know he said. You guys get the balance I'm trying to get here? Okay, let's move to the next one. Jesus taught the Word of God. That's what Jesus spoke the Word of God. Some of you have Bibles and the, and the words of Jesus are in red. The publisher is going to be consistent. Your whole Bible ought to be in red. Because the whole thing is the Word of Christ. Is it not? Amen. Okay. I needed that amen. All right. Number uh, 94. What are we on here? Five. Disappointment is the feeding ground of providence. This is five. Disappointment is the feeding ground of providence. Look at five, verse two. We've already looked at it. Jesus saw two boats standing by the lake. Fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. So they're finished. They're done. Good night's work. He got in one of the boats with Simon, asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down, taught the multitudes from the boat, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Lord, we've mastered, uh, we've toiled all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and the nets were breaking. Breaking. That's unbelievable. They were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats they both began to sink. Now, you stop and think about this for a minute. They've been fishing all night. Nothing. Jesus says, one more time. And, and, and they're about ready. They're about ready to go under. That's a great story. We love that story. But what we forget is, after working their tails off all night, they were deeply disappointed. Disappointment fits into the providence of God. Disappointment is part of how God works in our lives. Sometimes we're disappointed because we don't feel like we're being fruitful. Sometimes we're disappointed because we feel like where we are in life right now, we're not productive. Sometimes we feel that where we are right now in life, we're not making a difference. Sometimes we feel like uh, we're not contributing. Sometimes we feel like we're... And you know the fact of the matter is, you may be in a time in your life of barrenness. You may be in a time of your life where you're not productive. You may be in a time in your life where there's not a lot of fruit in your life. If you go up to the state of Washington, you can drive for miles and miles and miles in eastern Washington in the wintertime, and you'll see all these dead trees. They're everywhere. There are miles and miles and miles of dead trees. But you see, in actuality, they're not dead. They just look dead. Give them a few months. And you're going to see apples like you can't believe. See, um, before there's ever fruitfulness, there's barrenness. 
And there are seasons in life, just as in the life of an apple tree, where if you, you just drive by and you look at that tree, you'd say, that tree is as dead as a doornail. There aren't any apples. There aren't any leaves on that sucker. There are no buds on that tree. That sucker is dead as a doornail. It may look dead. And quite frankly, at that moment, it's not producing fruit. But down deep is a process that is taking place that in a matter of months is going to produce unbelievable fruitfulness. That's how the providence of God works in our lives. These guys were sorely disappointed. But disappointment is the feeding ground of providence. Number six, obedience to the will of God unlocks the provision of God. One more time. Obedience to the will of God unlocks the provision of God. Now let me say this. Some, here, the provision was immediate. Sometimes the provision is not immediate, but the provision will always be on time. Always. Can I say that again? Sometimes the provision will not be immediate, but it will always be on time. Unlike Les with my Bible, God always shows up on time with exactly what you need. Les's heart was right. He's just not in control of all things. That's why he's a pastor and not a member of the Trinity. But we like him anyway. Because Les believes in the Trinity. Henry Blackaby tells a great story about when he was pastoring in Canada and they were starting new churches and the Spirit of God was moving up there. And they were, uh, uh, they were seeing God do a great work. And they were launching a new church and they were going to start a church and they had funds committed from a foundation here in Texas. Um, and they were going to send this money that would enable them to purchase this building. And the indication was the, the funds would be coming right away. And a week went by, and two weeks, and the funds didn't show up. And another week went by, and the funds didn't show up. And, you know, they're getting a little hard-pressed, and they need that money for the down payment and all, the, you know, to pay for the building. And another week goes by, and another week goes by. And and then they got a call from the bank, and that banker said, this amount of money has been transferred into your account. And Blackaby said, how much has been transferred? And he said, this amount of money, and it was way much more money than had been committed. And Blackaby called down to talk to the foundation people. And he said, I just want to make sure we're on the same page here because we understood that you were going to be sending this amount of money. And they said, oh, yes, that's what we wired. But this amount of money came in. And it took them a while to figure it out. It took a couple of phone calls. But what had happened on that particular day was that on that particular day, the day they chose to wire the money, that was the day where the exchange rate between American money and Canadian money was at the most advantageous rate it had ever been in history for those in Canada. And the money that was given actually multiplied as they waited on the providence of God. 
See, the provision they thought was going to be immediate, and it wasn't. But it was absolutely on time. Obedience to the will of God unlocks the provision of God. Uh, you want to lock up the provision of God? You want to lock up the blessing of God? Then be, be, be disobedient. Keep living a double life. Uh, you're asking for the discipline of God. You're just flat out asking for it. Um, okay. Number seven. The providences of God lead us to the purposes of God. One more time. The providences of God lead us to the purposes of God. Look in uh, this, uh, what are we, chapter 5, look at verse 8. When Peter saw it, saw what? The amount of fish that were in both boats. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished. You ever been astonished? Just stunned were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, now catch this, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook everything and followed him. So Rick Warren's written a book called The Purpose Driven Life. A lot of people pick that book up. Why? Because a lot of people are looking for purpose in your life. Well, guess what? The providences of God lead us to the purposes of God. The providence of God, the provision of God in Peter's life led him to a point where he found the purpose of God. In other words, hey, Peter, guess what? You've been going after fish. Guess what? Your purpose is to go after sheep. Uh, Turn real quick, if you would, to, uh, uh, where am I going here? John 21. That he caused him to fail? Yeah. Gave him that great disappointment and failure. Are you talking about when he denied Christ? Well, both. You know, initially, and he, at the end, he wanted to go back to fishing. Yeah. So I'm going to go, meaning I'm going to go back to fish. Right. And then that's when the Lord appeared to him at the resurrection. Yeah, that's John 21, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, here's what I would say. Jesus didn't cause him to fail. He chose to fail. Yeah. I, I know what you're saying. Um, in John 21... Here's, uh, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the, Sea of Tiberi- at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. And Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, this is a whole different deal here, all right? The first one was early on. That's when they began to follow Christ. This is after the death of Christ and, and the Lord has risen from the dead. So they go out in the boat. That night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat. And you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Now remember, they couldn't figure out who was on the, the beach. Suddenly they figured it out. 
Peter said, deja vu. It's in the Greek here. Actually, he didn't say that. It was a joke from the 60s. Huh? He, he suddenly realized, you know what? I know who that is because I've been through this before. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. That's John. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging it with fish. Then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and Jesus, or the fish laid on it and the bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. Let me give you, uh, let me give you number eight. Present providences work with past providences to turn our eyes upon Jesus. One more time. Present providences, what was his present providence? They were fishing. They didn't catch anything. Well, this present providence worked with a past providence to turn their eyes upon Jesus. And then what's interesting, you get to verse 15. Now, you know, just a few days before, Peter had miserably failed. And so after they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, lest, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? All right, now here are three public affirmations. Peter shouldn't have been grieved. Peter was a little ADD here. Do you love me? He asked the third time. He said to him, Lord, you know all things, and is that ever true? You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Um, See, it's the providence of God that will eventually get to your specific purpose and to what he's called you to. You know, guys, um, I think I'm out of time. You know what these are? These are tests. There are, there are providences that excite us, like when we come home and the sprinklers are just throwing water everywhere. But, and, and I'm being dead serious here. Can I tell you something? Last Thursday, I was pretty depressed because it looked like it looked like that well was at the flat-out bottom and we were out of water, and I was going to have to drill another well. And I don't know if you have any idea how many thousands of dollars we're talking about. But I was going to sell Mary's car is what I was going to do to drill that well. <laughs> no, I didn't tell her that. And I had a hard time that day being thankful and being uh, joyful. Can I just be honest with you? I really did. It really bummed me out. Yeah. I ran out of time. I didn't think you were paying attention. All right, here's number nine. I was going to skip it, but here it goes. 
Did I say nine? I did say nine. See, you guys, yeah, you guys are too sharp. Here's number nine. See, when I go to Bible studies, I don't listen. That's the difference. All right, here's number nine. As the fish were held captive, and and can I tell you something? I wasn't going to do this because I'm out of time, but I'm going to take the time, okay? Because what are you going to do? Go to Dairy Queen? I mean, you know. As the fish were held captive on two occasions. I'll explain that in a minute. So we are held captive at times to test our faith. You had two occasions in Peter's life where the Lord, in his providence, held the fish captive. They could not go in a certain region. If, you, if you're old enough, you remember in the 50s, there used to be this commercial for Colgate Dental Cream. And they'd have a guy uh, off 50 yards with a bazooka. And then the sales guy, the announcer, standing there with Colgate Dental Cream. And then the guy with the bazooka or something would shoot and nothing would happen. Or he'd throw a softball, nothing would happen. And, and what the guy would say is, he would say, This invisible shield, there was a shield, a plexiglass shield. They were throwing a softball, and it bounced off the invisible. You couldn't see it. And Colgate Dental Cream would put an invisible shield on your teeth. This invisible shield. That's what God did with those fish. All night long, God put, what God did was God captured those, those fish, and he said, you're not going past this. And you know what? They didn't go. You read in Job, the Lord said to Job, um, where were you when I said to the oceans, this far and no further? He said, you can go this far and that's it. See, God did that with the, God did that with, the uh, with the fish on two occasions. Because, see, God runs fish and God owns fish. If he says, go over there, and when that sucker's thrown in, swallow him, and he's going to be in there three days, the fish does what he says. If God says, you can't go over here at all, then they can't go. But four feet away, they're sitting there waiting, so many... See, in a sense, those, those, those fish are captured. Uh, you know what's interesting to me? Job. In Job 42, when things are going to turn for Job after all the suffering, here's what the King James says. It says, the Lord turned the captivity of Job. I think the New American Standard says, when... When the fortunes of Job turned. See, there are times, guys, when God, if you will, captures us. Job was captured in some very, very difficult times. He lost everything. Lost his health, lost his family. He lost everything. And, and then, you know, we went through Joseph. There was a time in Joseph's life where, where Joseph was captured. Um, See, God is sovereign over all things. God can capture fish and say, you're not going anywhere. God can capture us and hold us and say, you're going to be in this for a while. Now, why does that happen? Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon says. <clears throat> and we'll close with this. God puts his servants sometimes into these experiences that he may test them. That Satan himself may know how true-hearted God's grace has made them that the world may see how they can play the man. He's speaking of Job here. Good engineers 
if they build a bridge, are glad to have a train of enormous weight go over it. And then he says, you remember when the great exhibition was built in London, they marched regiments of soldiers with a steady tramp over the girders, this great bridge, that they might be quite sure that they would be strong enough to bear any crowd of men. For the regular tramp of well-disciplined soldiers is more trying than anything else. So our wise and prudent father sometimes marches the soldiery of trouble right over his people's supports to let all men see that the grace of God can sustain every possible pressure and load. I am sure that if any of you had invented some implement requiring strength, you would be glad to have it tested. And the account of the successful trial published abroad. So too the Lord. God says, my work of grace in my people is mighty and thorough. Test it, Satan. Test it, world. Test it by bereavements, losses, and reproaches. It will endure every ordeal. And when it is tested and bears it all, then the Lord turns the captivity of his people, for the experiment is complete. Part of the province of God is that we'd be tested so that God might be glorified and he might be honored. You know how I think we get through the test? By reminding ourselves of the providence of God. Whatever I'm going through, he's going to take care of it. It's for my good. He knows where I am. He controls all things. He's running the show. He'll bless my life. Let's pass the test. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your greatness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your power that runs everything. We've heard enough about the greatness of men. We've heard enough about the power of our wills. We want to hear about your greatness. How great is our God. I heard that chorus a few months ago, Lord. When I went to church with my kids, they were singing that song, How Great Is Our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And I, I just have that in my head. And you know I sing that when I'm in the car sometimes. And, and that just gives me perspective. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. We're not going to sing it. We're just going to declare it as we close tonight. We say thank you. We're so privileged to be in your family. You brought us in. First you created us, then you brought us in. You'll sustain us. We praise your name. In the name of all names we pray. Amen.